नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा माय गेस्ट टुडे इज डॉक्टर विल्फ्रेड रायली डॉक्टर रायली इज एन असिस्टेंट प्रोफेसर ऑफ पॉलिटिकल साइंस एट द किंटकी स्टेट यूनिवर्सिटी ही होल्ड्स अ पीएचडी इन पॉलिटिकल साइंस फ्रॉम सदर्न इलिनॉय यूनिवर्सिटी एंड अ लॉ डिग्री फ्रॉम द यूनिवर्सिटी ऑफ इलिनॉय दिस इज अ सेकंड पॉडकास्ट विद डॉक्टर रायली एंड टुडे आवर फोकस इज गोइंग टू बी हिज सेकंड बुक व्हिच इज taboo 10 facts that you cannot talk about uh in the last podcast with dr riley we focused on affirmative action which is uh, an issue i am very uh you know passionate about and i wanted to understand it from an american uh, perspective because we have reservations in india but today we are going to be talking about his book so dr riley thanks for coming on the podcast sure thank you for having me sorry it took so long to organize by the way the reason i was wearing that uh, that stetson is that i was doing a consulting gig in the western united states i decided to take it off i frankly don't think it's my conventional look but um yeah i'm back i'm back now in uh, louisville so good to be here all right so dr i uh, i actually wanted to understand this uh, from your perspective now i know you are a qualitative and quantitative researcher so you look at data you look at facts and then then you try and uh, base it against political realities and political activism and political messaging but here's my question when you decided to write the second book uh i i i asked this question to each and everyone who actually writes a book is what made you write this particular book well the motivation behind the second book uh, taboo the 10 facts you can't talk about was simply i noticed that there were a lot of conversations going on in in particular the united states and also in the anglo sphere more broadly that didn't seem to be very factually based so i was curious as to what the actual facts were underlying for example the narrative of black lives matter uh, which is intense police brutality in the usa uh, perhaps canada uh the narrative of extreme racial conflict and in particular the USA um the idea of systemic racism i couldn't help noticing in this context for example that indians in particular outperform both whites and blacks by tens of thousands of dollars in the united states um the immigration narrative would it really be hard to set up a standard merit system a lot of our conversations seem to be the the conversation around quote unquote cultural appropriation that that was sort of a silly one not on par with the others but still I mean I can't help noticing that my fiance drives a Japanese car. I mean just so on down the line a lot of these discussions didn't seem to involve uh factual content so much as kind of moral posturing in a you know peacock fluffing feathers kind of style. So I decided to actually look at what the facts were along a couple of these different topic lines. Although I myself um lean right I'm a bit of a conservative. I also did a chapter on the alt right the hard right at the end where I looked at some of the things they claim. um are diverse societies more violent than non-diverse societies and so on so the motivation behind the book is what are the empirical realities that underlie some of these conversations we're having and i mean the first chapter deals with uh black lives matter for example which claims that there is an enormous amount of police violence against in particular young black men so activists like Cherno Biko have stated uh, this was on primetime fox news there's a totally innocent black man quote unquote murdered uh, at least once a day the lawyer benjamin crump uh, argues that the figure must be even higher than that he has a book called uh, open season the legalized genocide of colored people and when you actually look at the record keeping on this there's not a vast amount of unprovoked police violence 
And there's not a wildly disproportionate amount of police violence against black people. I mean, we can discuss whether American police use their guns too much overall, but those things simply aren't real. I mean, the total number of unarmed uh, African-American men killed by police last year was 18. Um, because police work in mixed squads of, of men and women, it's a bit hard to untangle you know, the race of everyone involved. But the total number of, of those brothers, those black men killed by only white officers seems to be under 10. So that, that's what we're talking about. When you see the names of Jacob Blake, um, you know, Hakeem Littleton, George Floyd, so on, made nationally prominent, it's not that those are necessarily not cases of bad policing, but we're not seeing the tip of an iceberg. We're, we're seeing virtually the entire iceberg made extraordinarily prominent by mainstream media. Kind of last sentence on this, but I mean, the total number of people shot by law enforcement officers, killed by law enforcement officers, in fact, if you go to the Washington Post's uh, The Counted, the USA Killed by Police database, is under a thousand in a typical year. Last year with COVID and the riots, it was a bit over. It was a thousand twenty-one. But I mean, of the of that number, uh, generally less than two hundred fifty are going to be identified as black. And I, I will note that although that's somewhat disproportionate, the other 70, 80 percent of white and Hispanic individuals there are just never mentioned. They're rarely discussed in the media. It would be difficult to encounter someone who could name even one of them. But um, the only argument you could make, I think, really, is that the rate at which black people are shot is somewhat disproportionate because we make up a bit under 14 percent of the population mm -hmm. and a bit under 25 percent of those shot by police. But even there, if we're being honest, we have to adjust for the fact that while we're not talking 1980s numbers anymore, I mean, the black crime rate is somewhat higher than the white crime rate. And when you make that adjustment on your computer in a regression model, the, the difference virtually goes away. So the, the issue is not that any death isn't a tragedy, but the idea that the police are running wild, shoot, murdering black men, or for that matter, poor white ones, there, there's virtually no evidence of that. And that, that's an example of what I, what I talk about in the book, that it's very easy to go into the media if you have any sort of press agent or background and make something into a very public flamboyant issue but what are the actual facts? And in, the, in this case, as in many others, the facts simply don't support the thing that we're supposed to be terrified of. This is a kind of a through line of my research, by the way, that very often from young child kidnappings for upper middle class women to racial conflict for everyone, diversity for the right. The things that people are scared of are by no means as dangerous as we are told they are. Society has been progressively getting better for most major countries for a while. So that, that is worth keeping in mind. All right, so this is the interesting bit. Uh, so obviously, I uh, I used Audible this time for your book because uh, it was just convenient. Uh, I just sometimes uh, some books are where uh, I just think your book, the experience was far better on Audible than actually reading it. Uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to because there's a lot of data given there, and it it kind of when when you listen to it, it sticks in your head. But as I was going through your book. The one thing that stuck out to me was uh, I was just keeping in mind two realities. One is the Dunning-Kruger effect and one is the backfire effect, right? Now, if we consider both these realities, now you're someone who deals with numbers constantly and you give, you make your arguments based on numbers. But what research and psychology tells us is that uh, A, people tend to overestimate how much they know about a subject, which is Dunning-Kruger, and B, when they are given with, you know, provided facts which are counter to their actual cherished views, they double down on their views on many occasions. So having these realities in mind, how 
how would a person like you so let's say i'm an average human being you know i'm just a average joe on the street and i go and i come across it you know i come across you in a coffee shop and we start having this conversation and let us stick to black lives matter and this police issue there was a very interesting survey that recently came across uh, i think it was done by the skeptic research center where uh, i think participants so i i read the article and then i read the survey the article was there on colette i think they talked about uh, black lives matter and to my utter shock i mean the amount of people who thought more than 10000 people were shot by cops was humongous within the democratic party corpus now if that is the case dr riley how do you as someone who believes in data someone who believes in numbers so how are you going to convince me who is that person across the aisle or maybe just at the other table in a coffee shop how do we do that Well, you have to respond to narratives with narratives. My understanding of the psych research is that if someone has a narrative in mind about virtually anything, um, the da- danger of police, the promiscuity and unreliability of women, the the corruption of government, giving a counterexample won't change the narrative. I mean that that is correct. However, I think in this case, if the narrative is wholly wrong. you can challenge it by providing a great amount of evidence that will make people rethink what they believe to some extent now of course some people are fanatics some people anywhere from the political left the political right the religions have no intention of changing things they believe that are absolutely wrong because they're dogmatists and i think in general when i encounter that i just stop arguing you get this on social media sometimes i mean i'm a reasonably well-paid successful guy. I don't have all day to listen to you yell at me, so I'll just move on to the next thing. But in terms of uh what are some so the study first of all, I mean you summarized this well, but this is the Skeptic Research Center. And this was absolutely amazing. They did a well-done large-end study of the number of people that the average American thought was killed were killed by the police in a typical year. And everyone overestimated it. But the effects were amazing within the US Democratic Party. So among standard leftists which is generally just people that identify as I am very liberal on an ordinal survey document 32% of them if I'm recalling this correctly thought that the the number killed in a typical year not a, a usually violent one was about 1000 and another four, this is unarmed black men killed by police and another 14 to 15% thought it was about 10000 uh, 7% thought it was more than that So in this the same thing continued among standard liberal standard identified democrats there if i recall the figures correctly 26% thought it was about 1000 uh 6 or 7% thought it was about 10000 and again if i recall correctly 7 or 8% thought it was more than that so in both those cases half roughly or a bit less for standard leftists yeah that's the exact graphic uh thought that thousands of unarmed men just black alone were killed annually by the police now to put this in context the total number of murders in the united states that's definitely something we need to work on but is under 20,000 in almost every year and although black people are disproportionately represented we we make up perhaps half of those so there there might be 10,000 black people of all ages races and sexes killed by homicide by violence in a typical year 
people assume that more black men are killed by cops than are actually murdered by anyone over the course of entire years. So this is this is the effect of the media and of the debate that I was trying to counter in the book. I mean, this is at an insane level of misbelief. So how would you counter that? I, I think at the first level, you you have to challenge the narrative. And there are two ways to do this. One is at the level of individual cases. So if someone says, well, the police are obviously absolute brutes. Haven't you seen the George Floyd video? You're probably not going to change that person's mind with just dull statistics. So the easiest way to respond when I talk about this would be to say, haven't you seen the Tony Tempa video? Mm -hmm. which is an, an absolutely terrible video where this young white guy who's mentally ill, he's on cocaine, is begging the police to just give him a break, give him a minute to calm down. And they basically, because he's not obeying orders, shoot him down like a dog would be a good way to describe this. They kill him. Um, and the police will argue, you know, we're, we're fighting men. We're following our orders. We told him to stop. Okay. But the exact same argument would be made in the George Floyd case. And it, it's really one of those, you can't justify something like that by saying we were just following orders. I mean, that's been established in police and military situations for decades through the entire civilized era. The, the Tony Trumpa video, I encourage people to watch it, but it's one of the most disturbing things you'll see. It's at least, let's put it that way up there with the Floyd video. So if people say, well, I've never seen the Tony Tempa video, you can then segue into, why do you think that is? So 80%, or let's say 70%, let's not, let's not even give a high figure for this. 70% of those killed in a typical year by the police are Hispanics, just working class white guys, Italian, Irish American guys in the cities. Did you know that? Why, why did you think you did? You didn't know that. Can you name, even leaving the whites aside, can you name one Hispanic guy, a group arguably more oppressed than African Americans that's been killed by police? Okay, well, that's 17% that's of those killed by police. Why, why didn't you know that? I found that to be, and that figure might vary year by year, but I found that to be a very effective narrative where people suddenly realize, oh, in 30% of these cases at most are receiving virtually 100% of the coverage, and there might be a political reason for that. Um, the second, when it comes to figures like the ones you're describing, is to take on the narrative from a top-down rather than a bottom-up level. But again, mm -hmm. you, you have to take on the narrative itself. I'm not, I'm not saying this especially brilliantly, but again, you're not going to go case by case or something like this. You would just say, there, I guess, it would, what I just did. Are you aware of the total number of murders in the United States? Okay, do you mind if I pull this up on my laptop? Okay, well, that's 17,000. You think 20,000 people annually are killed by the police. Do you recognize the problem here? Can we look at the actual number of people killed by the police? Oh, that's 1,000 and 200 of them were black. Do you recognize that this is wrong? Okay, how does that how does that challenge your view of this? And doing either one of these things, I've done them both with classes of highly intelligent students, which because of where I teach, HBCU in the Upper South are going to be 70% black. And the reaction is immediate, where kids will say, look, I still think the police shouldn't shoot 300, 200, 300 black people a year. They don't do that in Britain. I mean, these are smart kids. That's a valid point. But why don't we hear that they also shoot 750 white people? or white and Hispanic people. And once someone is aware of those additional facts, I don't think there's really a way to maintain the original belief, which is basically a racism-based belief. You can still cling to class, I suppose. I mean, very few of these people are going to be wealthy individuals, you know, people of means. But again, once you realize the figure is, say, 300 to 750, the original perspective has to go. So that, that's how I challenge the narrative. I would challenge it at the bottom level with here are some of the videos of whites, or I challenge it at the top level with your figures are more than the total number of people killed in the country.
so so i guess uh, it always depends on the framing of the issue so if i was to frame the issue this way that this is not about racism this is about violence on a certain class of people i agree with you or this is just about maybe we had a discussion about the incessant uh, culture in america of uh, a slightly more excessive police violence in comparison to other countries would that be a better way of putting it across yeah i i think that there's possibly something there again the the question kind of depends on what you choose to focus on so as someone who is primarily a quant researcher and or someone who's been a leader in my private life i tend to think we should devote the most money resources armed power whatever of the state to the biggest problems so i i don't think it's a right wing talking point to say for example that okay there are perhaps a thousand people killed by the police in a typical year you know 9 tenths of whom are guilty criminals oh this isn't good but there are also 20,000 people killed in the United States in African American poor white latino so on communities we obviously have a problem with guns um but if we're going to try to fix that we ought to work first on say epidemic gang violence that's killing young children or something like that so i don't i don't personally think police violence is anywhere near the top 40 or 50 problems in the country if you look at anything from obesity and diet to the state of many of our cities post covid to violence overall especially in black communities although i live in the appalachian region there's plenty of it in white communities as well so on down the line i mean but if you did want if someone was focused on the police violence narrative and simply could not accept that servants of the government with badges ever unprovokedly kill someone the honest and most effective way to approach this i think would be that there's too much of this and again it de- it depends on how you create that narrative one way to do that would be to simply compare the usa to other civilized countries you know how many people do the police kill in britain how many people do the police kill in india a large functional democracy i mean i would virtually guarantee it's under 1000 in a year at, at least in any officially recorded fashion and india has obviously as massive as we are three four times our population i mean just in terms of census figures i mean india crossed a billion a, a decade ago or more so i mean we you could use britain india you could you could do things that would intentionally embarrass us for example our rate was higher than that for russia at least a couple of years back so that that would be one way to frame the narrative why do american cops use their guns so much as opposed to why do they turn them on black people because quite frankly if we're if we're talking honestly as adults there's an answer to that there's a higher rate of violence in black communities and if you adjust for a black crime rate that's 2.2 times higher than the white crime rate if you exclude stop fraud and so on um that's going to totally explain that gap and a lot of people certainly at policy making levels are aware of that so there is an answer to that question there's not necessarily an answer to the question of why do american police shoot more people than russian police that doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of crime congested cities if you look at moscow or st petersburg anything else so we may have a problem at that level so uh, this is very interesting because uh, so this last bit actually connects us to the second chapter of your book because most of the times when you tend to have a discussion on this topic with people they say no you don't know there is a specific war against the people or, or, you know on people of color that, that's actually the literal reply you'll always get when you <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> then you actually go to the latter half of what you've just mentioned. And they immediately go to the problem. They say, no, you don't understand. It is very specific. There is a war on people of color in America. And you deal with that in the next chapter itself. So I actually liked it because it kind of connects uh, chapter one with chapter two. Because if you have to prove one, that then you have to quantitatively prove that there is no war. So how do we deal with that issue then? Let's say somebody comes to you and say, no, but there is a specific bias against people of color. Well, there, there's not. I mean, I'm not just going to be glib. I'm going to illustrate that. But I, I will say, I think that when people look at other nations, they often think in terms of famous incidents decades in the past. So, I mean, after high school, I traveled overseas and I spent some time in Latin America. But I mean, so I think when people think of other countries, they think of things that happened sometime in the past that are considered kind of defining in terms of that country. Um so, I mean, a friend of mine recently traveled to Egypt on business and jokingly said, like, yeah, I'm going to see if they're still building them pyramids over there. And it's like, I'm pretty sure they're not, man. I'm pretty sure those are those are done. Um, but when I was in Latin America, I'm from Chicago. And when I mentioned this, people would sort of make their hands into guns and go bang, bang, Al Capone, uh, things like that. Al Capone lived in the 1920s. And you can see this similarly in the United States. If you were to mention Ethiopia, for example, or for that matter, India, you, someone might make some sort of famine comment or, you know, or is, are they still struggling over there? And that may be the case in certain regions, but I mean, obviously India is a growing world power. They're, the African states, Nigeria and so on, are not what they were in the 1960s. These are to some extent ignorant comments. Where I'm going with all of this is that many people looking at U.S. race relations seem to assume it's still 1950. It's endlessly 1950. The reality is that segregation in the USA ended in 1954. Uh, prior mm -hmm. to that, it had been in existence in classic form only in the South. I mean, that wasn't something that you saw in, say, Michigan. And I'm sure if you could, someone could bring up restrictive covenants or something like that. There was hidden bias between whites, blacks, Jews, minorities getting the worst of it. But that my family's from Chicago. That simply wasn't something you saw in Chicago in 1947. Um, you know, in 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act. So racism is illegal in the United States. It's civilly and generally criminally illegal. I'm, that obviously doesn't make it go away any more than cocaine doesn't exist in the business world. But since 1967, and this I think is very relevant, we've had pro-minority affirmative action in place in the USA. So in virtually every job I applied for, and I'm sure this wouldn't be the case if I was you know, applying for work at body shops in the South or something like that. But in virtually every job I applied for, you know, young executive coming out of college and so on, I've had a substantial advantage over white colleagues with the same basic board scores and so on. That's simply a reality. I mean, my group of friends looked casually at where each of us was placed and noticed it. Um, the, the same thing, if you get a 1360 or some standard solid SAT coming out of high school, you're going to see a difference in the colleges you're admitted to as a black guy or Latino guy and a white guy. And by the way, if you're a South Asian guy or an East Asian guy, you're now going to see that you get into the worst colleges of anyone in the group, uh, given the same scores, the same grades and marks and exam scores. So this is something that most people are aware of, at least in terms of the third thing I said, that's been going on for quite a while. So the idea that there's a war on minorities in the USA, which is something I've heard from not only our own reporters, but also from many, many citizens of other countries, kind of coexists at best uneasily with this reality. And th this, as you said, is chapter two of the book. I just sort of look at this. It is the question or is the idea that there's a mass amount of interracial crime and conflict, mostly targeting minorities, accurate? 
Um, obviously, if you open a mainstream U.S. newspaper like The Times, you'll see these back-to-back -back stories of minority Americans attacked, doing things like swimming in public pools. I mean, it's the Pool Patrol Paula case, um, barbecuing in the park. That's the Barbecue Becky case. What is it? Walking dogs in Central Park, riding trains with hijabs. That was Yasmin Saweed, so on down the line. Does that match reality? What I actually found, and anyone can pull up this data themselves just simply by Googling something like Beru of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey, uh, table 14 of that breaks down all crime year by year across racial groups. But what I actually found when I did this with the 2018-19 data for the book is first, that interracial crime and conflict is pretty rare. So as I recall, 10.6% um, of all attacks on Blacks uh, were committed by whites. 15% at most of all attacks on whites were committed by Blacks. And again, Blacks make up 14% of the country. 70% um, of the people that attacked Blacks were Black. 65% of the people that attacked whites were white. And I will note uh, Caucasian Hispanics are no longer counted as white. Uh, Arab or MENA Americans, that's questionable. So in fact, the figure is probably considerably higher than that for whites. So that is the reality. There's very little violence across group lines. They're very, very rarely do a bunch of tough black guys go to a trailer park looking to fight tough white guys. The person most likely to kill you, in fact, is your ex-wife, which I find funny, but which is absolutely <laughs> true, or your current husband. I, the current versus ex thing might say something about men as versus women. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the we're, we're dumber. They may be, I mean, the, the old joke is they're more devious. They'll come get you if you mess up with a knife or a gun. But, I mean, all banter aside, the, the second part of this, though, I think is even more notable. Because the, the first part, you're 75% likely to be killed by someone you know. That's not all that surprising. The interracial crime that did occur, at least in that particular year, was more than 80% black on white. So there were about 650,000 reported interracial crimes. And of those, almost 600,000 were black on white, and only about 60,000 were white on black, which at some level isn't necessarily even surprising. There are more white people. They have more money. There are five times as many whites as blacks in the USA, although the math gets more complicated than this when you look at interactions and so on. But the idea that there is a surge of vigilantes Klansmen, off-duty cops, if you look at read between the lines, kind of putting minorities in their place, that simply doesn't seem to be true. I mean, we have professional police departments in both white and POC communities now, and that's that's not what they're recording. Yeah, but but again, the interesting part is, uh, because my job is to give you as many arguments as the other side would give you. They would, you know, take out the critical race theory card out, and they will say there is systemic racism, and the reason certain statistical realities exist is because American society has always been uh, in a particular way uh, oppressing people within its society and it is because of that oppression that these statistical realities exist. Uh, so how would one deal with a situation like that then? Well, I think that the, the systemic racism argument is more sophisticated than the argument that there is extraordinary racial conflict between, say, whites and blacks. Because in the second case, you can just measure something like the assault figures or the murder figures, and you can rapidly find out that there's not. I mean, prior to COVID, murder has generally been trending down for the past 30 years in the USA, and very little of it is interracial. 
the last year I looked at, uh, this would probably be 2016, there was something like 500 black-on-white murders and 300 white-on-black murders in the entire country. And many of these were things like love triangles that had gone interracial and then gotten weird. I mean, it's, there simply wasn't a, a bloody racial war going on. But the systemic racism argument is, a, so actually it's not very difficult to deal with at all. But the systemic racism argument essentially is that there must still be low-level prejudice that suffuses American institutions because otherwise we wouldn't see gaps in performance between groups in the USA as we do. Mm -hmm. So just to give a couple of examples, I mean, if you look at the SAT standardized exam in a typical year, white score in 2017, for example, white scored an 1118. Um, Hispanics were down at a 987. Blacks were at about a 950. And as I recall, Native Americans did worse. So the argument is, why do whites perform 140, 150 points ahead? Well, that prejudice, the test must be biased. There must be advantages that whites get in society simply as a result of being white. Uh, another example would be income. So if you look at household income in a typical year, um, for African Americans, that's about 44,000. For Hispanics, it's the same or a bit lower if you're talking about Mexicans or Puerto Ricans, but for whites, it's 65,000. Again, is there some kind of prejudice that is suffusing the job market such that well-qualified Blacks and Latinos and so on simply cannot get the same jobs that Caucasians with the same scores and so on can? Again, I think that's something that would have been true in 1954, but there's an easy rebuttal to this today which is that using modern statistical techniques, you can simply look and see whether that's true. You can compare whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians with the same background qualifications and see if they perform differently, if they finish differently in life. Um, it's one of the simplest regressions you can run. There may be maybe eight variables involved in that. And when we actually do this, what we find is that groups that differ in terms of something as important or at least as notable as what you could call the big boy characteristics, race and religion, tend to differ in terms of a lot of other things. Uh, the one, I mean, everyone's already heard me say this right now, but the one I open speeches with is just age because it's so simple, it's so non-controversial. It's obviously not genetic. No one's programmed to have children younger. We all you know, got married at 18 until quite recently. So, but today, the average age for a brother, for a black male is, or not the average, this is the most common. Uh, so the, the modal age for a black man is 27, for a white man is 58. Uh, even the median gap between the two groups is about a decade. So clearly, if you have 10 years, much less 30 years, more time than your opponent to accumulate wealth, you're going to have more wealth. This sort of very simple gap is absolutely relevant to almost every difference that we discuss between blacks and whites. We're talking about wealth. I mean, that's, again, decades of time to accumulate is a key, key component. Uh, if you're talking about crime rates, you know, I lean right, but it's absolutely unfair to look at the black data and not say, well, there's a much higher proportion of young, working class, urban men in the black community. So on down the line, so if you adjust for age, that's necessary to actually fairly compare people. You have to adjust for region. African-Americans and Hispanics are much more likely to live in the southern half of the country where wages aren't necessarily much higher for whites than for African-Americans or Hispanics, but where they're on average lower for everyone. Again, it makes no sense to compare someone in Manhattan 
with someone in Mississippi and say, well, the guy in Mississippi is making less money. That must be because of racism. I mean, you, you can look at test scores. This doesn't have anything to do with, you know, summer internships or any of these things that measure class. It's literally how much you study to some extent. I'm yeah, that that's something where there are black, white differences. So the, my point here after going on for a bit is that when you adjust for all these characteristics and you look at the same individual, the effect of racism itself seems to be on the order of a few percentage points. The gaps that are glibly attributed to systemic racism tend to be due to obvious, predictable other things. And perhaps the best evidence of that is that the most successful people in the United States are almost never white. They are members of immigrant groups that come to the USA more qualified than, as honestly to put it, more qualified than much of the baseline population because of the selective portions of our immigration policy and who face a substantial amount of racism but who do extraordinarily well because that has almost nothing to do with your being hired by a bank. I mean, the wealthiest group in the United States is Indian Americans, um, although this is only because Jews are not broken out of the white population, if we're being honest. But nonetheless, a fine job by Indian Americans, $135,000 per year. Uh, you move move from there to Taiwanese Americans um, carrying the East Asian flag, uh, Filipinos uh, carrying the Southeast Asian flag. Um, I guess the poll position for Africa would be held by South Africans or Nigerians, although South Africans are a diverse community. I don't know if they really count. But I mean, both of those groups, South Africans are in the top 10, both those doing extremely well. And if you go through the top 20 uh, groups in the USA, roughly half of them are non-white. We can't forget Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans. Uh, I suppose the Arab banner would be brought forward by the Lebanese, you know, and, and so on down the line. And many of these groups, um, whether you're talking about members of perhaps back home, the Indian mercantile community, the Lebanese themselves, uh, the Igbo tribe from Nigeria, Jewish Americans, many of these people are legendary around the world as traders and the like. So that's who actually is winning in the United States. It's not Southern white residents of Tennessee without criticizing that group. So there, there's very little evidence for systemic racism if you adjust for any one of a range of things, how old people are, test performance, much of which has little, if anything, to do with racism or even with class. Um, the Asian performance scores in particular don't seem to be tied to class much at all. They increase maybe 100 points across the entire social class range. They seem to be tied to studying, going down to the public library and reading books. So that is the, that is the rejoinder, I think, to systemic racism, that in fact the, the leading pack in America is wildly diverse and is literally composed of South Asians, East Asians, Blacks, Jewish individuals, Whites, and it seems to be based largely on performance today, not in 1950. Yeah, the interesting bit uh, to to this data set is that uh, as much as I, uh, I'm, I mean, obviously, my primary focus is always Indian politics, but I do follow American politics. There seems to be this uh, wave that at least uh, whether it's Indian Americans or the rest of the Asian Americans, they are now considered in the white adjacent category. So obviously, they've been canceled and uh, they're all out of the oppression Olympics. I guess they don't get a card. Especially Indian Americans. I don't know what we did to not get the card into the Oppression Olympics, but it's very interesting. But uh, it's very—I've uh, never seen good arguments uh, from from this section of the American left. I'm not 
tarnishing the entire American left. But I'm talking about the far left progressive uh, segment in America. They somehow never seem to have had a good answer to the Nigerian Americans. They, they, they cannot answer for that. But they've definitely, they found an easy way for the Indian Americans. Oh, they come from a place of privilege in their own society. They're cancelled. They're white adjacent. So that seems to be there for a while. But now I want to focus on something that is... Okay, so I read Ibram X. Kendi. I I read Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi. It, it was almost as if I was sacrificing for the rest of humanity by reading those two Thank people. You. Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, so uh, and my thought, okay, I read Robin DiAngelo. She, so this is what I got when I read her book. White people are horrible. All of you suck. That was my summary of uh, Robin DiAngelo. Ibram X. Kendi was, if you don't agree with me, you suck. That was the only difference between both of them. But so you kind of answer a lot of questions. I would say what Ibram X. Kendi raises in his book in, in chapter six, where in his worldview, it is not just good enough to be not supporting racism. You have to be this anti-racist person uh, as far as Ibram X. Kendi is concerned. And he has a very specific definition of what an anti-racist is. And then it goes into a litany of arguments, chapter after chapter. And by the end of that book, I was like, oh, my God, nobody can live up to this expectation. Yeah. And this is a completely lopsided version of what racism was, which basically says that I'll be very honest. I'll give you an example. To assume that Indians or people of Indian origin cannot be racist is a load of rubbish. Mm -hmm. Because I can tell you when, you know, good people from Africa come into India, there is so much reportage of these, you know, good people, African students coming into India. And sometimes they have, I'm not saying it is rampant, but the point is those poor kids have to face racism. So are they saying Indians can't be racist? What nonsense is this? Everybody is going to be racist. You, you can be racist to an Indian. An Indian can be racist to a white person. A white person can be racist to a black person. A black person can be racist to a white person. When did this happen, Dr. Riley, that only a specific person can be racist, everybody else cannot be racist? Well, I, I think that's just an argument that has, that's an argument that rests upon the near deification of white people that has no basis in reality. First of all, I obviously don't mean to offend you or your cultural group, but I've always found Indians to be at least as racist as anybody else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a society that includes a yeah. great deal of North, South, I mean, Dravin, Aryan, if I'm getting the terms correct, so on, conflict. Skin colors discussed constantly. I mean, my Indian girlfriend in college, her family was comfortable with me because I'm black, but fairly upper class and also part <laughs> British. But I mean, they would, they would describe me in these awkward terms like wheat complected. And it's just sort of like, well, that's... I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, black black people, black Americans in the upper middle class do this as well. The light skin, dark skin war is something people discuss. So it, it didn't bother me. I didn't find her a bigot. Um, I, I still talk to her dad, actually, although no longer her. But this is, and this is in, um, there were two people that fit that description. So this, this would be the second it, as I moved into grad school, by the way. I don't want to offend any past partners. But at any rate, the, the serious thing here, though, the idea that racism is something only white people are capable of is absolute nonsense. And I want, I want to talk about something that you mentioned uh, earlier, which is the idea that Asians are successful for a couple of reasons. The idea that in, Indians are white adjacent, or certainly that Chinese people or Nigerians are white adjacent, is just made up nonsense. 
I mean, so it, it's very important to be patient and tolerant, but also to recognize that just people are saying dumb shit that you don't have to accept <laughs> anymore. I mean, yeah. when you think of the great races of the world, and I mean no disrespect to the Aztecs, but European Caucasians certainly are one of them. You picture, you know, the British guy on a horse. West Asian Caucasians are another one, though, where you picture the Indian guy, perhaps with mustaches. Then East Asians are one of them perhaps someone in traditional Chinese or Japanese garb. Then Africans, the Nigerian trader, would probably be the symbol of that continent. So to say that the Nigerian trader or the Indian guy or the Chinese guy is a white guy is just nonsensical. Those are the other options. So, I mean, what you're doing here is really taking whiteness as sort of a magical category like phlogiston, and using it simply to define anyone that has certain characteristics like success or a high IQ, which by the way is extraordinarily racist. Um, I'm a successful person with a high IQ and I'm not white. I'm part Caucasian and I enjoy having some British background that did great things. But I mean, genetically, I'm clearly more than 50% brown and black and I like that. So to tell me that I'm white because I show up to business meetings on time is just silly because I'm not. And it's, it would be even more absurd for most business it would be even more absurd if I were Chinese. So the, the idea of white adjacency doesn't mean anything except that you're trying to separate whiteness from people of European Caucasian descent and assign it to business people or successes or something like that. And this brings up fascinating questions. Like if I'm a white failure, do I become black? I mean, do we really want to, to pursue that logically down the path which it would go? Um, the... The second point, by the way, in terms of why the success of Indians or of Asians is disparaged is also nonsensical. So the claim is that these people are upper middle or upper class back home. And this is why they're succeeding here. First of all, that doesn't answer the question of why they're beating our upper middle and upper class here. I mean, that would still be a question of performance. I mean, there, there would be an enormous home court advantage, you would expect. Um, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, and East Indian students all beat white students on the English portion of the SAT. So there, there are real questions to be asked about American educational practices among the white and black and so on upper middle class. I think that that's just a given. But a secondary deeper level of this is if the USA really were a racist hellhole, the places that the Indian and Asian students were coming from wouldn't matter. I recently read a biography of the diplomat Ralph Bunch, great um, black American scholar, writer, um, what probably one of the most impressive men the country's produced. But when he traveled through the South and some of the Caribbean islands in the 1930s or 40s, he was still sitting on the back of the bus because we were an institutionally racist society. So if the USA were actually a systemically racist society, if 200 point SAT gaps really were due to subtle racism, it wouldn't matter where Indians come from. They would be sabotaged at every turn. They would find apartments just not rented, no matter how polite the smiles were. Cars wouldn't be available at the dealership. Harvard wouldn't offer slots. That's not what happens. What you see instead is performance that exactly matches potential, which counters the entire argument that's being made. So I, I think that's a pretty key point. But uh, to actually get to the point you were making, Ibram Kendi, yeah, the Kendi definition of racism is, again, with a lot of this stuff, it's important to be polite, but it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. The Kendi definition of racism essentially is that any system that doesn't produce exactly equal outcomes across racial groups is racist. racist. 
And anyone who doesn't support only systems that produce exactly equal outcomes across racial groups is racist. It's important to recognize that racism to a lot of these people is very similar to the biblical idea of sin mm -hmm. or the, the Alcoholics Anonymous idea of being a drunk. It's not that you're a drunk if you drink too much. It's that you're a drunk if you have a taste for alcohol and you can never stop being a drunk. You can only permanently regulate your alcoholic beverage intake, drinking only so much or not at all and following the 12 steps. This will go on your entire life. That is what Kendi or Robin DeAngelo would tell a well-meaning suburban housewife about her racism. Um, and by racism, they would mean nothing like what racism means to most of us. I would encourage people to simply ignore most of these ideas. Um, almost literally every system produces outcomes that are in some way disparate across class and race and regional lines, simply as a result of statistical luck. I mean, you could argue that the tax system, since given the figures I just mentioned about income, discriminates against Indian Americans. The NBA is almost entirely black and Balto Slavic in terms of genetic background and so on down the line. No one in practice thinks of these institutions as racist because everyone has an equal chance to compete. What Kindy would actually be demanding, if you take him seriously as a thinker and unpack his ideas, is sort of a Star Wars style department of fairness that would regulate every aspect of society to make sure everyone finishes equally. And if you read the appendices of his books, he openly says this. I believe he calls it the Department of Equity. Yeah. <laughs> it, so. It's actually absurd. Uh, I mean, I have to say, uh, those two books were the worst books I've read in my life. I mean, I've read a lot, but I mean, they take the cake in terms of bad writing. It was just absurd. When I was reading that, I was like, if you're a white person who reads this, I don't know how and likes this. I don't know what kind of mental state you're in and what kind of a self-hating person you've become because that book was absurd. But it is what it is. I, I mean, what can I do? American society seems to be in a weird spot is all I can say with, with these kinds of things. But now I want to focus on something that you bring up in chapter seven. So now I'm going to lay it out to you. As someone who sees aspects of his culture becoming part of the larger American zeitgeist, a very popular version of it would be yoga. I mean, I, I see yoga. I mean, I mean, as uh, as long as nobody debates that yoga originated in India, but well, there is some obscure corner in the progressive left that tries to debate that too. But those are weirdos. Uh, so cultural appropriation is an interesting thing, and I want to bring you to a point that was raised by an Indian American thinker, Rajiv Malhotra, and he said that there is a difference between cultural appropriation and cultural digestion. So what he tries to say is that cultural appropriation is different where, you know, cultures mix with each other and one culture learns of the other culture and uh, you learn and feed off of each other. It's like right now, this is not my culture. The clothing that I'm wearing is definitely not of my culture. This is of a Western Anglo-Saxon influence mm -hmm. on my life and my society. And I have appropriated it. By the way, nobody seems to have a problem with that. Nobody goes around telling people, hey, how dare you wear a shirt and a pant? That's cultural appropriation. Nobody says that. It's never mentioned that there to any Indian. Uh, otherwise, we should all be wearing our own clothes, native Indian clothes, right? Uh, which is a dhoti or a kurta. And on many cases, somebody might come and say even a kurta is Persian. So that's not, uh, that's not even Indian. But that's a separate issue. But with digestion, what Rajiv Malhotra tries to say is that, look, you learn from the idea. It's fine. But... If there is a power imbalance, the 
stronger culture might take the practice of the weaker culture and over a period of time the sources of the weaker culture kind of get removed from there and the practice takes a maybe avatar of itself and the sources are removed the disadvantages of a situation like that would be that you cannot mine for more from the source culture and maybe it's a loss to the stronger culture now somebody might say that that is not the case in every situation like i'll i'll, I'll tell you i find it very weird sometimes that when i read the material on mindfulness other than a few words changed here and there and if somebody read buddhism i never understood what was the difference between the two i mean i did not know what was the difference between vipassana and mindfulness but somehow somebody seems to have patented it in the west and mindfulness is a new thing and i was like well i learned this in my school under my teacher <laughs> in india anyways and this was the same thing you just have to focus and i'm not saying everybody does that there are fantastic uh mindfulness practitioners in the west who always go back to the buddhist scriptures and they give credit where it's due but there are a few who don't so do you think there is this kind of different the differentiation between what is cultural appropriation and what is cultural digestion anyway um so in terms of cultural appropriation versus cultural digestion i think that's an interesting point but i also think that in terms of how that would be interpreted by many people you would get back to only white people can be racist to some extent i mean the core argument there is that you can take from another culture so long as you're a minority unless i'm missing something and i i do think that's a dangerous path to go down cultural appropriation in general i think is an absolutely nonsensical concept if you if you're simply looking at the standard definitions of culture and appropriation so you're taking a practice or a life way from another society that's trade that's simply life so for example i mean as you mentioned i'm wearing a polo jacket which comes from american whites or the brits you know i am the shaven head style has been adopted by different cultures over the year but the chin beard i actually got from a drawing of a viking fighter you know this is a watch that's a chronograph that was developed by i think the german military i think you're wearing beats by dre headphones you know there's an african mask on my wall that's from kenya where my ancestors don't come from and you could really go into a much more sophisticated version of this like if i eat sushi for lunch today which i plan to i mean that that comes from the japanese culture obviously my car is german you know i don't know how how broadly or narrowly we're defining cultures but if i eat tandoori chicken not to focus on food too much tonight that actually is stolen from your culture sarah or perhaps from a different region of india so i think this idea in general is asinine almost everything we do going back to farmed bread coming from the middle east or hunting having originally been developed by black east africans is taken from someone else from a different region Now there are more sophisticated versions of this. I mean, so people have argued in the academic left that appropriation really only matters if you're appropriating from someone that you've warred with or oppressed. But again, given human history, that would actually include most of the groups that I've just mentioned. I mean, the mm -hmm. USA fought wars of potential mutual annihilation with the Germans and the Japanese. Um I mean, a white would be unable to take anything from black culture in that scenario. I'm not sure given the conquest of the southwest how a white or a black could take anything from Mexican culture 
including you know, preparing tacos and burritos and the like. So th this idea to me seems largely useless. The, the qualifier that you've added is an interesting one. Um, is it a bit different if someone who is from a marginalized culture learns from those around them? Theoretically, I don't, I don't think anyone would complain about the slaves learning to wear trousers, for example, in the, the historical American South. The question, an obvious rejoinder, though, is that I don't think we have any oppressed, marginalized cultures in the USA today, to some extent, or in urban modern India, although you might correct me on that one. I mean, it's a bit silly for a black dental student to say to her working class white buddy who's studying to be a pilot, I can learn anything from you and use it to make money, but you can't take things from me and use them to make money or have fun. Cut those dreadlocks. That in practice, if you look at the actual power dynamic between those two rather than the imagined one in Robin D'Angelo's mind, doesn't make any sense. So in general, I think that people should be able to and legally are able to take any good ideas they encounter from other people and use them in business or personal life. Um, I, I think the only caveat I would add is that it is gentlemanly to give credit or something like that. I mean, it would certainly be tacky and bizarre for a white hairdresser in Beverly Hills to say they invented cornrows or to give them another name like style braids. And you, you do very occasionally see this sort of thing, but you see it less and less often in the internet era because blacks and whites and everyone else would just ridicule you. So ridicule may be the best solution to the few excesses here, but of course you can learn from other people. There's no reason you should go to an Indian city and see everyone walking around in pajami trousers and traditional gear. I mean, that, that's not something that's ever going to happen again. Any more than Westerners are going to go back to wearing pants without zippers and wood buttons and clogged shoes and so forth because we found a better way. Yeah, I agree with you. It's just, uh, just a comment that is made every time is that like in a country like India, when we wear these clothes, we don't call them Indian clothes. We always call them Western clothes. They're called Western outfit. And then when we don't wear these clothes, we say now we're wearing traditional wear. That is our own uh, own clothing. I guess there is some sort of a dynamic there. Like I'll give you an example. When Surya Namaskar, which is basically S-U-N, the sun salutation, becomes appropriated and then digested and then eventually becomes the S-O-N, sun, Jesus, the son of God salutation. Hmm. Now, that's where appropriation becomes digestion because you take the roots out of the native culture and then you appropriate it in such a way that you don't want it to be anything pagan, but you like yoga too much and you don't like paganism. So how do you work around it? So the S-U-N salutation becomes the S-O-N I'm not saying everybody does it, but it was when I found out about it, I started cracking up. I, I was like, oh, my God, they needed to do so much mental gymnastics just to justify something like yoga, which was very interesting to me. But uh, I agree with you that it is at a you know, it is at an obscure corner and it's not the norm and the aberration will always be called out uh, if it uh, anyways happens. Uh, so so that's a that's a fair enough uh, uh, situation there. Now I want to focus before we wrap it up, because I have to. Uh, what I liked about the book was that nobody can accuse you of not focusing on the alt-right because you dedicate a chapter to the alt-right. And now here's my question. Why did you? You could have easily avoided it, right, in this book. I mean, it's not like any anything else in this book is not justified because it's all properly sourced. But why the alt-right then? 
Well, I think that in right now, there's a backlash, as anyone on the internet has seen, to the social justice left among young kind of working through upper middle class Americans that have computers that often can get pretty extreme. I mean, there's the quote unquote Groiper movement, the America First movement, which doesn't mean what John McCain would have thought it did anymore. I mean, sort of the entire right of Tupperverse, the manosphere. Um, and obviously, I don't think like you know, Tucker Carlson himself is inspiring any of this. But I mean, like there are a lot of people that identify with sort of right wing, witty, but often ridiculous and kind of racist identities in response to social justice. And this is no secret. And my point against a lot of the things these people say is not that they're mean or something like that. They would love to hear that, but that they are wrong. That it's important to look at the claims made in debate by both the left and the right and see where they rest in reality. So, I mean, in the final chapter of the book, I look at some of the things that the alt-right says. And I mean, one of those would be the argument that there's no case for diversity racially. And I point out that there obviously is a fairly strong one. Diversity has some negatives, like increasing conflict, but it also has some positives, like decreasing groupthink, improving patent rate given merit immigration. I think the most obvious is increasing cosmopolitanism. So people joke about food, but there's also you know, the arts, cultural, dating, yes, dining, you know, experiential scene pretty much anywhere is improved by having a variety of different people. I mean, if you genuinely lived in a traditional 1910s American small town, you'd eat a whole lot of unseasoned potatoes. Like there's a lot to be said for moving beyond that to downtown Chicago. So I, I make that case. And I also respond empirically to the claim that diverse societies have rarely existed and are destined to collapse. And that in political science is something that's considered so untrue as to be almost laughable. Most large societies historically, if you look at the Roman Empire, British Empire, Abbasid Caliphate, move past the empires, Brazil, India, the EU taken as a whole, Canada, the USA, most of these entities have been very diverse just because they've covered a lot of ground that has included a lot of pre-existing peoples that lived on that ground. And there are some questions about how long these societies can maintain that status and keep all these people together. But for most of those I just mentioned, it's been hundreds, if not thousands of years, and you enjoy the advantages that I just described while that happens. So I point this out. And an additional note here is that empirically, there's not much of a correlation between racial diversity in particular and violence. This is something that's been studied again in poli-sci. And it, it's technically accurate to say that diversity can increase conflict. But the, the alt-right and the hard right in general are full of these little verbal tricks, uh, one of which is the confusion of race and ethnicity. So the most conflicted countries are diverse, but they're not racially diverse at all. You're talking about Somalia, Bosnia, places like this. All of the diversity is tribal diversity among same race individuals. So countries that have a fair amount of racial diversity, like Singapore, where you have stable income people of different genetic background ethnicities, are in fact less violent than countries like Afghanistan or Congo, where you have poor people of the same race who are still at a level of development where they associate with this idea of tribe. 
So when you look at how diversity can cause conflict, you have to look at, is there ethnic and linguistic diversity? Is there tribal diversity? Is there religious diversity? Is there racial diversity? And of these empirically, racial diversity causes by far the least amount of violent conflict. Uh, I did a, not a major, but a good sized room, Midwest political science paper on this once where I looked at uh, the predictors of three forms of violence, internal homicide rate, terrorism, and international war. And at least for the first two, the big predictor was, again, ethno-linguistic diversity. Do you have a lot of different tribes that speak different languages and have different flags, whatever race they are? Assimilated racial diversity, having an Indian guy at Harvard, had almost no effect on these metrics. So I make this point that the, the hard right is getting diversity wrong. The hard right is unduly pessimistic about functional societies. And I, I take down some of the other marginal points like the NRX movement. There, there seems to be a, a sneaking sympathy for kings on a lot of that side of the fence. And there, there's a reason we don't have one of those anymore. I, by the way, I do think there's a legitimate monarchist position that you see in Asia and Europe, but I, I don't think it's expressed by the American alt-right very well. I don't, I don't think we as, a, as Yanks know what the positives and negatives of a king really would be. So I, I wanted to say that the response to left-wing fanaticism isn't right-wing fanaticism, it's knowledge, facts. And I, I think that last chapter is included for that reason. Uh, I, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that chapter because uh, I felt that it opens up uh, people to a lot of possibilities because uh, somewhere down the line, I believe on the internet, a lot of times opposition to left-wing extremism has given an excuse to people on the right wing or in India, I call it the non-left, to spew all kinds of garbage and uh, as if you're not supposed to be questioned when you spew garbage. So I actually you know, commend you for writing that dedicated chapter because I felt it was a very necessary chapter. So Dr. Ali, before we wrap it up, uh, so could you tell us what are the new projects that you're working on? Is there any new book in the pipeline? Actually, yeah. Um, I... Right now, I'm in that period of kind of late 30s life where we're going to see what uh, the future success picture is going to look like. So I'm, I'm trying to do a lot of things. Uh, I have a couple of book projects coming up. One of them has been bought by or not. We have, there haven't been contracts signed yet. But one of them, as I understand, has been accepted by my previous publisher. And that's a look at what's going on with higher education today kind of as a follow-up to that whole clump of books that we saw in the late 1990s that looked at the idea of you know, tenured radicalism or illiberal education, but also beyond politics, just whether the college model was functional going forward. So, I mean, I'm going to look at what happened with the, the ideas like Black studies, women's studies that were just taking off then, what happened to the uh, somewhat hostile and illiberal climate on the campus. Did that go away? One wonders. Um, but also just some, some practical issues in higher education. For example, is it feasible that 70% of all white and black males in the USA go to college for at least some time? Um, the development of massive new degree fields so that doing virtually anything in the middle class, working on a sales floor, now requires a college degree. How functional is that? The debt question. So I, I want to write a pretty significant book on higher education. And again, uh, have a publisher for that. And I've also, I'm pitching a couple of other book ideas right now. One with a former police chief named Maurice Richards is, focuses, and again, this is a practical book. This one focuses on the idea of how to actually improve policing. 
So when you mentioned earlier, and I think we agreed on this, okay, a thousand people getting shot is a lot, regardless of these somewhat made up racial issues. What are you guys doing? There are practical solutions from teaching police to fight, which is a chapter of the book that's drawn out so far, as in actually physically defend themselves, to eliminating some of the union benefits that cops currently have. I have a big problem with public sector unions in the first place that would actually reduce the rate of police violence. So that's something I'm drawing up right now. How could you actually improve American policing, not with crazy left-wing solutions like taking the weapons away from the police and cutting the budget in half, but practically make that arm of the government better and more effective. And I think, I think we'll land a publisher for that pretty soon. I also recently was pitched a book as a sort of a partner writer by a young academic that I think is really interesting. They were thinking about calling blindsided. And this would be a book about the difference. This would be almost a psychological in terms of his expertise book. But the focus would be the difference between intentions and results. So there are almost two levels here. Um, on the one hand, when it comes to sort of microaggressions and the like, many people are arguing that what someone's intent was, as we a joke or something like that, almost doesn't matter. And you could go through a couple chapters on this, me too, and so on. But there's a more serious flip side to this, which is that when it comes to major public policy, like criminal justice reform, the claim seems to be that only intentions matter. So if we try defunding the police for a year, as we sort of half-assedly did last year, and crime spikes 40%, the response will be, well, we didn't expect that to happen. We can't be blamed for that, so on down the line. Um, while in reality, I think that that result would have been pretty obvious to many people. So the, the focus of this book, getting to the point, would be on sort of leadership level decision making. Intentions matter to some extent, but the focus has to be likely outcomes. Outcomes matter much more than intentions. So the, I, the focus would be translating your intentions into outcomes that you want, which is a more complex business than you might think. So that, that one is not fully prepared yet, but the higher education and police reform books are pretty much at least as ideas ready to go. And there are a good number of other things that I'm at least thinking about working on. One of them, this is probably the last book idea, but one of them as a non-academic book would be called something like How to Fix Shit. And the, the practice of the book would be laying out eight or 10 of these problems that we're struggling with right now and actually breaking down the best ideas on the right and the left and saying, this is what I think we should do. This is what the experts think we should do. I haven't really seen that done across a range of American policy issues outside of a white paper. So obviously I have those ideas ready to go and I'm gonna continue writing for the journals, for public intellectual outlets like Commentary and Quillet and so on. So yeah, I would expect to see quite a lot of stuff from me, uh, hopefully welcome this year. That sounds great because uh, we need more and more of this kind of discourse uh, in, in, I don't know how to put it, um, outrage-laden, clickbait-driven uh, social media content where uh, until and unless you don't shout or scream, somehow you're lost in the crowd and nobody seems to listen to you. That You know, your book, um, both your books, actually, the one before that also were actually very refreshing to read where, you know, somebody has basically given 
fact-based arguments in a very base level way where an average viewer can read that. So, so Dr. Riley, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you and I wish you all the best. I'm looking forward to your new books uh, so that I can read them and call you back on the podcast. Boom. All right. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. All right, guys, time to wrap this discussion up. If you like what we are doing at the podcast, please subscribe to the channel, become a member or subscribe on Patreon. You can buy the merchandise or send donations to the UPI. I'll try my best to come up with even better discussions. Uh, I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.